Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, I spoke with Michael Sonnenschein, the CEO of Grayscale Investments. Grayscale is the world's largest digital currency asset manager, and its flagship product, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, has had some major ups and downs in the last couple of years, just like Bitcoin. There are a few important things to know before we dive in. First, Michael and I discussed two main government regulators, the well-known Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and its less popular cousin, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC. A big debate right now in crypto is whether it's a security like a stock, a commodity like a natural resource, or something entirely different. We get into a lot of the intricacies here later in the episode when we talk about regulation. The second piece of context to know is about different types of ETFs, exchange-traded funds. Grayscale was a pioneer in early Bitcoin futures ETFs, which are regulated by the CFTC. This is important to note because Grayscale has been trying to get the SEC to approve Bitcoin spot ETFs. Unlike a futures ETF, a spot ETF would track the current market value of Bitcoin. But the SEC has refused, and Grayscale is suing them. On top of all of this, Michael shared some really thought-provoking insights on leadership and how to build a strong team and culture in a highly innovative, rapidly changing industry and environment. This episode is packed with exciting insight at the bleeding edges of crypto, and Michael was just a wonderful guest. So let's dive right into the conversation. We bring you Michael Sonnenschein. Michael Sonnenschein, what a pleasure to have you today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. I am calling in from New York and very excited to turn the corner on a new year. I think we can we can still say that and you know find ourselves in the middle of I think my third crypto winter, but nonetheless excited about what's transpiring in our industry and all the good that is coming out of crypto and crypto related concepts and technologies. Thanks Michael. And I will say Whoever I'm allowed to speak on behalf of, I will speak on behalf of them to say, I think that it's never going to be too late to say we're excited for this new year after what we endured in 2022. So I want to dive right in because I know we have limited time and you're wildly busy. Since it's top of mind for almost anyone paying attention to crypto or finance in general, what do you make of the recent FTX collapse and how has it changed your perspective on crypto at all? Speaking from now about nine, a little over nine years within the crypto space, I feel, you know, certainly saddened by recent events that have happened in the crypto space. There's a lot of folks that lost money, a lot of folks that, you know, perhaps were entrusting certain people within crypto with their capital and maybe got tripped up by poor governance or poor level of disclosure or or too much, you know, kind of excess leverage that was in the system. But I think what's the takeaway and what I think nine years in crypto has given me perspective on is that whether it's FTX or any other point in time within crypto where there's been a very popular or very central organization or force that 
has dominated, you know, a certain part of the crypto ecosystem, which I think at the time we could never imagine crypto being anything other than uh, centered around, you know, that one provider. Each time we've seen that central figure get eradicated for one reason or another, the crypto ecosystem has demonstrated a ton of resiliency, has learned a lot of lessons, has grown to be stronger, and has ultimately become better off, right? And so to not maybe speak in abstraction, but maybe in something concrete, you know, there was one point where a lot of, you know, Bitcoin trading was concentrated in Mt. Gox. There And then Mt. Gox went away. There was a time when a lot of Bitcoin mining was concentrated in China. And then that very quickly got dispersed to various geographies all over the world. And there was not too long ago where, you know, most of digital asset trading volumes, or a majority of them rather, were occurring on FTX. And, you know, now FTX is no longer part of the ecosystem of exchanges that investors around the world are using. So what's so powerful about this community, what's so powerful and attractive about the technology is really the fact that it is very much resilient as an industry. We're still in the early days. So as we kind of weed out bad apples, we as a community can can continue to grow stronger. I appreciate you sharing the, the very bullish case, which I agree with on crypto in general. And I share in your sadness about a lot of the pain that's been inflicted and suffering that's been inflicted on a lot of people by certain people in the ecosystem over the last several months and, and years even, as you, as you allude to, would agree that it seems that the industry, the ecosystem has continued to learn, fortify, evolve, iterate, innovate in very, very positive ways. It's interesting because you've talked about your nine years now in crypto, in this industry, in this burgeoning cutting edge industry. Tell us about your story, how you started in traditional finance. You spent some time at Barclays, at JP Morgan. You moved into the crypto space in its earliest days. Let's focus on why did you make the switch to crypto and why so early on as well? Yeah, I mean, truthfully, it comes down to luck and kind of timing. I think that's certainly something that I would say is, you know, truthful about my career in general and just the ability to kind of go with your gut. I got into the workforce around a time when the economy and things weren't terribly rosy, uh, 2007, 2008. And I worked at, you know, three bulge bracket banks, Bank of America, Barclays, and JP Morgan. And, you know, my time working at large financial institutions, I'm very fond of that time. Ultimately, it was time for me to move on from those opportunities. But I will say that they were formative in that it gave me a better and probably the best education I could ever get about the underpinnings of the financial system, what it meant to work within a regulated environment, ultimately all of the things that just quite frankly, no matter what classroom you sit in, you you actually cannot learn. And I think that I was reaching an inflection point in my career where I wanted to feel a greater connection or or have a greater connection between what I was doing and the impact that it was having on the company that I worked for. And that's not to say that there aren't countless individuals and groups making material impacts on large institutions. It's just sometimes a little bit harder to measure. And as I kind of came upon that realization in the winter of 2013, I had the fortunate opportunity to connect with our founder, a gentleman named Barry Silbert. And upon connecting with him, had a conversation about Bitcoin, which was really very little, if at all, on my radar at the time. He actually told me that with quite a bit of conviction, 
that Bitcoin was going to change the world. And I had never had an experience personally, professionally, academically, where a peer, let alone you know an adult or someone that I looked up to, a superior, have the conviction to tell me that anything, let alone this totally unknown, very you know nascent technology called Bitcoin, was going to change the world. And it had such a profound impact on me that I took a, I think a 55, maybe 60% pay cut leaving JP Morgan. I joined Barry and, you know, told me that I should come help them build something, that there would be few, if any, opportunities in my career to be a part of building something, that typically it would be opportunities to help massage, grow, turn around, you know, existing organizations, and that this was the opportunity to help build one. You know, I initially joined to help him lead the sales effort. Fast forward to today, nine years later, I've built an unbelievable organization kind of carrying out Barry's initial vision. And Grayscale has now become the largest digital currency asset manager in the world. You know, we manage probably $17, $18 billion in, in client assets. And I've been CEO of the business for for the past two years. And I quite frankly feel like we're just getting started. Michael, I appreciate the inspiring, thorough, and yet concise summary of an incredible journey and story through Bank of America, Barclays, JP Morgan, you and Barry meeting, how he inspired you, right, to this vision of what, what crypto could be, it sounded like. And you, you trusted your gut and jumped, went all in. I appreciate you sharing that you took a 55 to 60% pay cut. I left my job at SoFi to come and run Scholars of Finance full-time and took about a 60% pay cut to run this nonprofit. Granted, I don't have any giant financial upside on the other side, potentially. <laughs> so that said, you know, for any entrepreneurs out there who are, are considering or people who are, have an entrepreneurial spirit who are considering making a giant move, I've got to say for myself, like staring that pay cut in the face was quite frightening, actually. It was really scary. It was one of the largest hurdles to get over. I'm curious for you, what was the sort of thought process you went through to overcome any like hurdles in making that big jump, following your gut? Yeah, well, I think it was just kind of back to the theme of luck and just right time, right place. I was early in my career. I could afford to take the risk. You know, I hadn't yet settled down. I hadn't yet started a family. So there was just kind of an alignment of where I was in my life personally. One of the other things, even though I think Barry knew that I was very excited about the opportunity and was certainly running through the door, that he at least caveated for me that, you know, if at any point it felt like it was going off the rails or I had lost faith in what we were doing, that the opportunities to return to traditional finance would, would always be there. You know, I think that that certainly gave me a sense of comfort, a sense of perspective, because not everything is forever. Circumstances change and career trajectories change and personal circumstances change. You know, fortunately, I was just in the right place at the right time. Thanks, Michael. To, to all of the executives listening to this conversation today, it's an important note to reassure the younger future leaders in your networks that, that you might mentor or even be exposed to, that they can take risks. And even if they do fail, they still have a road in front of them. Michael, similarly, one of my mentors in finance said something very, very similar to me to help me overcome this, this, this hurdle. And I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's really important for all of us to sort of take up that mantle to inspire the next generation, as I'm sure you're already doing. I mean, you've done passively with me, Michael, like as you've done with other people, I'm sure very directly to embark on these entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, with that said, I, I want to segue a little bit into leadership. 
values, principles. You know, as you and I have discussed, Scholars of Finance is all about leadership. It's purpose-driven, principled leadership, stewarding capital to serve the greater good. That's what we're here for. Crypto is bleeding edge technology. It's pioneering innovation in the financial industry. To be in crypto is to be a leader. So what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned during your career on leadership? I think the old adage, you got to lead by example, is certainly one that you kind of have to wake up with every single day. I think that I have never shied away from always trying to surround myself with people that will challenge my thinking, bring to the table differentiated experiences, both personally and professionally. And ultimately, I'm confident that the composition of the organization that I've built, you know, certainly mirrors that, you know, individuals that have worked in various environments, various sizes of businesses, they all have totally different personal backgrounds. I believe that as a leader, when you can foster an environment where individuals can show up as authentically as possible, you get the absolute best output from those people that they could possibly give you and, and the company. I think that's been really key to the culture and, and kind of the leadership style that, you know, I've certainly done my best to instill at Grayscale. You know, we expect a lot from our employees. They are a smart bunch. They are a hardworking bunch. They are dedicated. They're agile. I think we've instilled in them a let's leave ego at the door. I jokingly like to say we have a, a no asshole policy, right? We spend too much time together to to have those kinds of personalities amongst us. But I think also recognizing that all of our employees, if you lead by example, in the sense that you allow them the space to also be fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and volunteers and worshipers and boyfriends and girlfriends and all the other roles that they play in addition to the roles they play at Grayscale, you get from them a different level of dedication and a different level of focus. You know, I think every day that passes, the world around us is increasingly complex and trying to help employees to manage the complexities of, of what they do inside work and outside of work, really giving them that space has been really key to leading an organization that people genuinely want to be at and genuinely want to help continue to build. I appreciate the focus on enabling your employees to lead and, and act and show up authentically. Similarly, at our firm at Scholars of Finance, I say something very similar that we, we just don't have the time and the space and the bandwidth given how much we have to do and accomplish to achieve our vision and mission for like immaturity, for you say no asshole policy. There's just no space for it. It's interesting to hear your take on leadership, right? How you lead others and how you lead people in an organization. You've been very, very successful by every measure, you know, building the largest crypto asset manager in the world. Like, I mean, I, the way I've thought about you myself is like, you know, you're Larry Fink, you know, just many, many years earlier in that journey. <laughs> I hope that's not, doesn't come across as flattery or is it too big of a mantle, but, you know, you have built the largest asset manager in a particular asset class. Obviously, BlackRock has done you know very, very well in 2022 with inflows. They're one of our founding partners. We're very grateful to have them supporting us. But I'm curious to hear about your sort of intrapersonal leadership. What are some of the paradigms, the values, and the principles 
that you believe have contributed most to your success personally? You got to really do what you love. And if you do and you find what it is, it becomes very quickly no longer work. And I feel so fortunate to kind of wake up every day. And it's hard to even say that I like go to work in like the traditional sense of it, because I just love what I do. And I love the people that I work with. And I love the processes and the projects and everything it is that that we're working on building together. I think for me, some of the things that I hold in, in high regard are things like integrity, you know, certainly organization, certainly folks that are punctual, communicative, like these are the kinds of things that I think have been so successful. I mean, they sound on the surface relatively mundane, but in concert, they're actually exceedingly powerful. And it's, you know, I think one of the ones that I would probably emphasize the most is, is really communication. And I can't stress it enough. We live in a time where it should be become easier and easier to communicate with, with greater ease. And it's so often that the opportunity to communicate is overlooked or communications are taken out of context. And that can be quite challenging, particularly in business environments. You know, I tend to surround myself with over communicators because we just move so quickly. And I think that's been really, really key to to our success and ensuring that people are aligned and, you know, are operating from the same information. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate you unpacking. Plus one to integrity being absolutely critical. It's in our mission statement here. You know, I think given the recent events in the crypto ecosystem, I'm sure that all of our listeners and everyone in the crypto ecosystem appreciates your earnest commitment to integrity, both individually and uh, you know, across the firm at Grayscale. With that said, I would love to dive into a couple of the other key topics that we were going to cover today. The next is Grayscale regulation what's going on at the SEC. I want to dive right into the intricacies of where the business is at. Um, first, can you tell our listeners more about Grayscale? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think for Grayscale, we were very early to identify digital currencies. We're going to become a bona fide access, asset class and that, you know, investors would want to have access to it. What does that mean? It means that investors don't access Bitcoin, Ethereum, and countless other digital assets or cryptocurrencies the same way that they would a stock, a bond, an ETF. And, you know, as a result of that, we kind of took those challenges head on and ended up building a family of investment products that would allow investors of all shapes and sizes to access crypto in a way that felt more traditional, more secure, and within the existing confines of how they access stocks, bonds, and, you know, other investments that they have. And so if you kind of follow that analogy, some people will say, oh, well, the Grayscale family kind of looks like the spider family of crypto products, right? Or the iShares of crypto products, right? Where you have a whole family of quote unquote access products for, in other cases, certain set of commodities or certain set of subsectors of the equity universe. And in the case of Grayscale, it's to access you know, digital currencies uh, broadly. So today we have 17 different digital currency products. Some of them are just providing passive exposure to a single digital asset. So a long-only Bitcoin fund, a long-only Ethereum fund, so on and so forth. And in other instances, we have products that offer exposure to a basket 
or a theme within the digital currency asset class. So things like DeFi or smart contracts or you know, the large cap segment of digital assets. And really, we now service really investors of, again, all shapes and sizes. So many of our products are publicly traded you know, here in the US and are invested in by retail investors and institutional investors and everyone in between. We also you know, service investors in jurisdictions outside the US that are looking for the familiarity and comforts of you know, an investment vehicle that's reporting to the SEC that has audited financial statements, an offering memorandum, a tax reporting statement um, at the end of each year. And we also, in the last year, uh, opened our ETF franchise. We launched the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF here in New York on the New York Stock Exchange, as well as launched a USITS version of it in London, Frankfurt, and Milan. And so we really do find ourselves at this access point for investors globally, hopefully as the springboard to you know, what we think of as the digital economy. And many of those opportunities today are in things like digital assets. Thanks, Michael. I'm curious to dive into some of the products. Grayscale and a handful of other firms have applied for spot ETFs for cryptocurrency in the last couple of years, but there have been some regulatory hurdles, especially with the FTC. If I am correct, you applauded the CFTC's recent stance in the FTX fallout that crypto futures are commodities. If Grayscale and other crypto firms concede to Gary Gensler's argument that crypto is closer to a security and should be regulated more strictly like a security, wouldn't that probably make it easier to get crypto ETFs approved? Is, is that a trade-off you think might be worth making? Or, or how do you see that? Well, so I think this is one of the challenges we find ourselves in, where in other jurisdictions around the world, it's quite clear who the regulator is that should oversee technologies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and others. Whereas in the US, it's a little bit more of a patchwork. And there's a little bit of a jockeying of kind of domain between the CFTC, the SEC, and what else you know, may come out from a guidance or rulemaking perspective from other federal you know, agencies or branches of government, whether it's Treasury, IRS, you know, Office of the Controller of the Currency, the list kind of goes on and on. You know, I think broadly, we have seen clarity in the US around Bitcoin being construed as a commodity. And that is a development that has certainly led to the creation of Bitcoin futures, Bitcoin derivatives which has been a really important element of creating a more well-rounded Bitcoin market on a global level. The, the ability to have leverage, the ability to have derivatives has just created a healthier two-sided market. And that's led to the approval of Bitcoin futures-based ETFs here in the US, but still the continuous kind of rejection by the SEC of spot Bitcoin ETFs, right? So just for everyone listening, the difference is an ETF that either holds a Bitcoin futures contract or a Bitcoin or an ETF that just holds Bitcoin. So in the case of Grayscale's Bitcoin fund, you know, GBTC is the public ticker symbol for it, which is today the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. It trades today on the over-the-counter market. And we have continuously been trying to convert it to an ETF because it would create, you know, the most optimal framework for investors, not only giving them greater protections and greater oversight, but ultimately an instrument that you know most perfectly tracks the underlying value of the Bitcoin that it holds. Now, there's been, you know, to your point, Ross, a bunch of conjectures by the SEC 
about, you know, there not being a mature enough Bitcoin market or perhaps, you know, not enough uh, surveillance of the market or protections from manipulation. But we certainly feel, particularly in the wake of, you know, FTX and, you know, a lot of other recent hiccups in the crypto ecosystem, there's never been a more important time for the SEC to bring about a, you know, spot Bitcoin ETF. This asset class isn't going away. Investors are accessing it every single day. And so to kind of shut the door continuously on the opportunity to bring Bitcoin into a framework that would have it even closer under the eye of the regulator that oversees the largest capital markets in the world here in the US is just a, a posturing that we at Grayscale just can't understand. And that's why today we're actively engaged in litigation against the SEC to challenge that decision and are very hopeful that the court system will make you know good receipt of our common sense arguments that are listed in the case and and ultimately give shareholders what what they deserve which is a spot bitcoin etf Michael, thank you so much for that really, really intricate and thoughtful answer. Yeah, concise again. I have two very quick follow-up questions to this, if I may. First, a a very basic follow-up question for our younger listeners. What's the point of having a spot Bitcoin ETF when people can just buy the coin itself in a few minutes on Robinhood, Coinbase, or somewhere else? What's the advantage for an investor? Yeah, so I think it depends on the investor. I think to say that a spot Bitcoin ETF is the only way to buy Bitcoin is certainly not the case, right? We see this in countless other asset classes. So let's take gold, for example. People can buy gold, people wear gold jewelry, gold is used in you know, manuf- manufacturing and industrial applications, but there's also gold ETFs, right? I think in the same vein with Bitcoin, there will certainly be users that will continue to want to buy Bitcoin directly. And those may be people who want to transact with the Bitcoin, who may want to build on Bitcoin, experiment with Bitcoin. And then I think there'll also be those who want to, you know, more so invest in Bitcoin. And I think one of the biggest and probably most notable differences between buying Bitcoin directly or buying it through an ETF or a product like GBTC, the the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, is the ability to buy Bitcoin exposure in a tax-advantaged account. So that's an IRA, a Roth IRA, a 401k. And it is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to do so when you try to buy Bitcoin directly in one of those accounts. But because GBTC is a security with a QSIP, with audited financials, with tax reporting, you name it, it's certainly eligible for those other types of accounts. So that in and of itself has been a major propellant for how GBTC has grown to become the largest Bitcoin fund in the world. Thank you for the the really thoughtful unpacking there. I really, really appreciate it. Coming back to your other point that you had shared, just about the regulatory milieu, we'll say, in the United States, we had had Chris Larson from, from Ripple onto our podcast. He's a, he's a mentor. He's, he's a donor of ours at Scholars of Finance. He had come on and talked about the regulatory environment many, many months ago. You know, He was citing Singapore, a number of other countries where they have one single regulatory body overseeing the financial system in that nation. And we have something like eight. And you mentioned all this sort of jockeying and posturing, which can be really frustrating and it it can stifle innovation. It can, we had uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce on the podcast as well, talking about this, how we need regulatory clarity around uh, cryptocurrency generally to enable and accelerate innovation in the space 
and as well as protections in the space. And that, that segues into my question. You had said in your year-end CEO letter that investors deserve stronger regulatory protections. What are some of the regulatory protections that you think are missing right now and that the ecosystem would benefit from the most? We've never kind of been as far along on the path towards regulatory protections and clarity as we are today, but that's also not necessarily a shining endorsement for how far we actually need to go in the sense that we now have, you know, both bipartisan and bi- bicameral support in the U.S. for, you know, crypto-focused reg- you know, regulation, which is great. I think 2023 is going to be a big year for crypto regulation. But ultimately, it's kind of, you know, dovetails with what I said before, the fact that the current regulatory posture towards these new, exciting, nascent, and, and quite innovative with unique attribute you know, assets like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, the fact that our regulatory stance in the US today is one of, well, these are assets that can just fit within the existing regulatory regimes and the rules that have been around for, you know, the last 90, 100 years is just not the case, right? And then I think what we've said in, in time and again, is that regulators have really only been doing one thing in and around crypto, which is just calling out bad actors and and creating enforcement actions. And, you know, we certainly believe that that is, you know, the ability and and something we applaud, bad actors should be called out within the crypto space. But we now are, you know, reaching an inflection point where this has become such a popular asset class that clearly is not going away, that we do need our regulators to build out new frameworks that do build in the certain types of protections, oversight, disclosure, and ultimately a regulator that is going to be responsible for this asset class. And that's the inflection point where I think we've reached. And I'm I'm optimistic that we can get some of those answers this year. Right. Thank you, Michael. Zooming out a bit to think more about the long-term viability of regulation, some of the skeptics would say, aren't there inherent features of crypto which might make it hard to adequately regulate? You know, How do you guarantee the same level of investor protection for something which is designed to be anonymized and decentralized in most cases? So, you know, I think that you bring up some of the interesting attributes that I'm talking about, right? You know, the crypto has qualities and features that, you know, stocks and bonds just don't necessarily have. And ultimately, I think from a regulator perspective, you know, I I sometimes, even though I'd like to see them do more, I do also sympathize with them in the sense that every day that they're not creating these frameworks, the crypto ecosystem continues to grow and to morph and it becomes that much harder for them to be able to put rules and regulations in place. So I think what's incumbent upon us as an industry participant and a large one at that is really rooted in education, right? The ability to have these types of conversations with regulators. And we do this all the time because the asset class is growing and it is evolving. And we just want to make sure that when regulation does pass across the desks of regulators, that they don't shy away from it for a lack of knowledge or kind of a lack of engagement. Thanks, Michael. I think that's really, really helpful color to provide on some of the distinctions and some of the approaches that we can take to regulation. If you're okay with it, can I switch us to crypto just as an asset generally yeah, for a course. couple minutes? Okay, fabulous. Thank you. Shifting to crypto as an asset class and touching on the recession a bit later on. For an average retail investor, you know, a typical S&P 500 index fund has returned, you know, approximately 10% over the long term with robo investors like Wealthfront, you know, Myoma Mater, SoFi, traditional firms like Vanguard where fees have been made 
nearly negligible. Setting aside fraud, volatility, environmental externalities, and other major concerns, at a more basic level, why do you believe investors need crypto? Yeah, I mean, crypto is uncorrelated to other asset classes. So I think that there's a hunger amongst the investment community for ever more diversification within their portfolios. I think that crypto also just kind of means something different to every investor, depending on you know what their view of the world is or where they're comfortable investing. And so in the US and in maybe some more developed economies, you see crypto being used as a more you know, investable asset, whether that's because people believe it to be an inflation hedge, a store of value, a digital gold, a gold 2.0, gold for the digital age, or in other parts of the world that are less developed, less infrastructure, where perhaps, you know, crypto is the springboard to financial inclusion or the rails on which, you know, value moves much faster, much cheaper, and, you know, without, you know, the need for intermediaries. So, I think it kind of depends where in the world you are. I'd say comfortably that the, you know, the gold 2.0 thinking around crypto or around Bitcoin specifically is a narrative that I'm confident is here to stay. We're so early into the life cycle of the asset class that I would be also confident to say that we're still too early to have yet unlocked all of the other killer use cases, even though we continue to see the proliferation of the metaverse and NFTs and DeFi and you know all the other great things coming out of crypto, but it's still early days. And I think it's important for us to remember that. I want to come back to some of those different use cases that are emerging for crypto. I want to touch on a comment you made earlier. You said before that crypto has weathered several winters and that this time is no different. But how do you think an impending, if not already happening recession will impact this particular crypto winter? I mean, if Back in winter 2018, spring 2021, the markets were hot. Is there a chance that you know this winter will be colder with uh, the recessionary environment that we seem to be in? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't. I'll tell you that the crypto ecosystem is far more developed in going into and in this crypto winter than it was in past crypto winters. I think crypto is much more global in nature, and there's many more access points, much more attention being paid to it. I think recently, the run-up in crypto prices that preceded this winter, crypto was being very much viewed as a risk-on asset in an environment of very low interest rates and kind of easy money. It'll be very interesting to see whether ultimately we do have a recession, whether we do see more sustained price environment like, like we've been in, whether or not risk on comes back into the fold and whether that's the propellant for the crypto ecosystem. Right, right. It makes so much sense. I wish we had so much more time, but I know we were tight on time and I'm I'm only going to ask two more questions to wrap up and I want to make sure we get you out of here on time. But in response to what you just said, I could ask a hundred follow-up questions. <laughs> going back to something you mentioned earlier, cryptocurrency has proliferated far beyond Bitcoin Ethereum, XRP, to include all sorts of things from altcoins and meme coins. And blockchain technology has also proliferated to give rise to things like NFTs. Is all of this proliferation good? Are there parts of crypto that are just frivolous? Um, How do you sift through it, Michael? There, I think with any new technology, there's of course always going to be parts of it that are, you know, I don't wouldn't say frivolous, but, you know, are perhaps not, you know, taken as seriously as other parts of that ecosystem. 
you know, I think, you know, it is certainly environments like crypto winters, which weed out the true, you know, industry stalwarts from those that are thinking through ultimately the trajectory that crypto has. So I can't say it's an easy job, but, you know, I think it just comes with time and experience. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. My final rapid fire question for you. You have been so generous with your time today. I really enjoyed hearing you speak at the Forbes Iconoclast Summit last year in New York. I'm so grateful that you offered to come on this podcast today and have this conversation with me. I'm sure you must get so many requests for your time. And you've been generous with Scholars of Finance and with me today for our podcast. What stood out to you about Scholars of Finance, our organization and mission, and what compelled you to take the time to join us today? Yeah, I think, you know, any opportunity to connect with an organization such as yours where, you know, opportunities in and around, you know, this industry broadly, you know, finance is just an opportunity that, you know, myself and and Grayscale would want to be a part of. You know, I certainly, as I shared some of my personal story, thinking about when I took chances and when chances were taken on me, you know, I hope that that is, you know, certainly the kind of message that folks listening, that it resonates with them. And it's inspiring to um, think about, you know, what is certainly never a, a linear path, no matter kind of how far out you plan it or how rigid you are with it. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate you being so generous with your time today. Hope we can have you back on in the future. Wishing you the best as you embark on the rest of 2023. And we can't wait to see what happens with Grayscale and the firm. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.